Well, welcome to Table Life Church. We're glad you're here, and our little guys are dismissed to kids' worship with the kids' table. They're going to be learning their own lessons. We have a whole crew today. Uh, many who are with us at bowling day yesterday. Um, unfortunately, I wasn't able to make it, but I heard it was a lot of fun. So we have some expert bowlers that are going out to kids' ministry today. They could teach some of us. So go ahead and watch this. about you, but the extra hour of light that we've received through daylight savings time is a blessing. Who can agree with me? Anyone like, like, you know, when you're like leaving the office or coming home or whatever, and it's not like dark out already. Maybe you go for a walk at night. It's, it's that kind of thing. It's just the mornings that kind of get you, right? Um, and, and I think, you know, all of us realize that we're in a time of year when the darkness is lessening and light is gaining, um, and that's a good thing. And, and here in central Pennsylvania, all these things are beginning to sprout from the ground, even though it's like 28 degrees out today. <laughs> and so you might see different flowers, different little shoots, even some daffodils I've seen in people's yards and whatnot. And, and I feel like in many ways, we're doing the same thing. We're doing the same thing, that, that, that there's new life in us that emerges after what can seem like a long winter. And, and I think the, the springtime helps us to understand in a new way, really the, the promise of the new creation and the new life and resurrection of Jesus, especially as we head towards Easter. Well, we're in our fourth week today of our sermon series, Eyewitness. And that was a little video you just watched that we've been looking at firsthand experiences of people who were there, who knew Jesus, met Jesus, especially during those 24, 48 hours uh, before Jesus' crucifixion um, at that time. And so uh, we, I love, I have to say, I, I've loved um, doing research for this series and even our interactions in our table groups, our small groups, and kind of hearing in, listening to some of the leaders, like, how did things go? Tell me about this. And I, I've, loved, I've loved this series um, for a couple of reasons. But one is that, that every week, as we're kind of unpacking a different story and a different, per- a different person, um, we get to see these people's humanity, their, their humanity, that these are real live people that once existed and walked the earth just as you and I. And, and not only that, but there's no Marvel superheroes. There's no perfect people. These are real people that have, wrestle with lots of the same questions that you and I do. And, and the thing is that all of them, I just want to spend a minute here, all of them uh, had uh, the ability to choose what to do with Jesus. 
All of them had the ability, and we call that the gift of free will. We call that the gift of free will. And so um, I've gotten the question from, from some folks, and you know, I've unpacked this question for myself before. You know, there might be the question, why study this? Like, why study these specific people if God just ordained all of this to happen anyway, right? Like, if God chose Judas to do what he did, and Peter to do what he did, and Pilate to do what he did, why would we even look at these different characters and debate whether or not they had a choice if they really didn't? Well, I think it's important to just clarify for a moment that these certain people were not forced by God to make these choices. But that doesn't preclude God from using their choices. See, knowing what somebody's going to do and causing it are two very, very different things. And that's how God works. That these people, just like us, were not pawns in God's story. Or, um, Growing up, like 80s, 90s, we have any Jim Henson and the Muppets fans? Yeah? Like, we're not puppets. We're not Kermit the Frog, you know, that just kind of lies there until, I hate to break it to you, but somebody picks him up and makes him talk and that kind of thing and does, does as the, the writer has planned. God didn't design us that way. That God gave us free will. But at the same time, God also has this thing called omniscience, which is a big word to say all-knowing. God knows the beginning and the end, the future. He kind of reads history like I hold up this piece of paper from start to finish. And free will and God's all-knowing are not mutually exclusive. That you can hold the two things at the same time. So we also have to emphasize, too, that if we're saying that God caused, you know, Judas to to betray Jesus and Pilate to do what he did and wash his hands of the situation, if we say that God caused those things, we're actually saying God is the author of evil and God is the author of wrong. And we know that God is a loving God who does not cause evil and didn't cause Judas or Peter or Pilate or even Barabbas, but rather he used them. He used them and their decisions for his own purpose. And there's a difference there. There's a difference. And I know in the Big C Church, there's certain traditions that emphasize free will, and there's certain traditions that emphasize predestination or God's chosen nature. And we tend to align here at Table Life Church with the kind of the free will camp, the Arminian or Wesleyan, just for those of you that are interested in that kind of stuff. And so maybe you grew up in a background that talked about, you know, how God has ordained everything and chosen certain people and, and that kind of thing. But I look at this story And I see that God's work is not limited by people's choices. That God uses our wrong choices for good. Like, who else can do that? It shows the character and true nature of God who can take darkness, the darkest darkness, and bring forth light. So so just saying that, last week we talked about the story of Barabbas. Barabbas, the one who was chosen over Jesus, the other person who was, who was let free instead of Jesus. And today we're going to explore a different person in the story of Jesus. And before we get to him, um, I want to just kind of set the stage for you from a personal experience of mine. And so it was the summer of 2002. And I was in college at the time, but it was the summertime, so I was home and working at a day camp. 
And uh, I had, of course, many friends from high school that I'd stayed in touch with and got together with at different times. And one day, I don't know what day of the week it was, I got home from camp that day, and my parents were in the living room. And they said, Chris, Kristen, can you sit? My real name is Kristen. You all know that by now. Kristen, can you sit down? Can you take a seat? And I just like looked at them, and I knew something was wrong. Well, they shared with me that several friends of mine from high school had been on a trip in Canada, and they were in a van, and they were driving around like a mountain area, mountainous area. They blew a flat, a flat tire. They went over the side of the cliff. Two of them out of the four were killed. And, um, and these were guys, that, they were four guys, they were really close with. We used to go Christmas caroling, a whole little group of us from the band and the choir. We would camp out at like Starbucks in the corner at Christmas time and sing songs and people give us free hot chocolate. And we were close together. Uh, we got them, we played, watched movies together, played sports together. Two of those guys died. And they were freshmen in college. Like, I remember sitting there, my parents telling me this, of course, and like, what do you, you know, maybe you've received news like that at some point. It was just such a tragedy. And I remember just my heart sinking and thinking like, I'll never get to see Dave again. Like, I'll never get to, like, I'll never get together with, with these guys. Fortunately, one of my friends did survive that, and he lives t- today. And, um, and it's, of course, it's an awkward thing to, you know, go back and say, you know, do you remember this and remember that? But I, I just remember that moment of sitting on the couch and just having, like, my world kind of collapse for a second. And, and I remember also thinking about God in this situation, Um, growing up in the church, growing up in the Catholic tradition. I remember thinking about God's role and what God was doing through this. And so uh, just forgive my kind of blunt question to you today, but have you ever felt let down by God? Have you ever felt let down by God? I did, especially in that moment. And before you get all religious and you kind of go for the canned answers and say, no, 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 I've never been, whatever, like dig deep. And I think if, if we all dug deep enough, we would all answer that truthfully and say, yes. Have you ever felt let down or disappointed by God? Well, my hope is that in today's message, that whether you have or maybe you're in that place right now, or maybe you will be at some point, my hope is in today's message that you would visit there but you won't stay there. You would visit, but not stay. So today's eyewitness is that of Joseph of Arimathea. Joseph of Arimathea. He's a little short section in the scripture. Sometimes we read through the story of Jesus' crucifixion, we'll kind of zoom right through him. But let me just talk about him for a couple minutes. He's not to be confused with Joseph, the son of Jacob from the Old Testament, or Joseph, uh, Jesus' earthly father. That's not him. Joseph, he plays a really kind of subdued role, but it's kind of profound when it comes to Jesus. See, this Joseph did the unappealing work of burying Jesus. He did the unappealing work of burying Jesus. And in this little snippet, this story of Joseph, Joseph had to learn how to bury things without giving up. He had to learn how to bury without giving up. And at this point in Scripture, that in the story, Jesus has been through a lot. 
And we talked about the story of Jesus being arrested and then condemned and Pilate washing his hands of the situation and letting the people choose. And then he's beaten and he's mocked. And then he's crucified and he's left to die on a cross. And this is where Joseph of Arimathea enters the scene. And we're going to look at Mark's gospel today, Mark chapter 15, uh, looking at verses 42 to 47, tells Joseph's story here. Um, It's in your uh, worship guide. It's also going to be on the screen for you to follow along. It was preparation day. That is the day before the Sabbath. Take note of that. So as evening approached, Joseph of Arimathea, a prominent member of the council, who was himself waiting for the kingdom of God, circle that, went boldly to Pilate and asked for Jesus' body. Pilate was surprised to hear that he was already dead. It usually took like three days. Summoning the centurion, he asked him if Jesus had already died. When he learned from the centurion that it was so, he gave the body to Joseph. So Joseph bought some linen cloth, took down the body, wrapped it in the linen, and placed it in a tomb cut out of rock. Then he rolled a stone against the entrance of the tomb. Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Joseph, saw where he was laid. So you look at the story and you kind of think like, like, now talk about your all-time letdowns in life. Really, you kind of see that here. But it's here where Joseph steps out of the shadows. And it makes you kind of wonder, at least I wonder, how many others like Joseph were there? kind of these secret followers of Jesus on the margins, on the fringes. How many others were in Joseph's spot? But you imagine the scene. So let me just kind of illustrate this for you. Um, The Sabbath is coming, holy time when the Jews abstain from work and doing things. And so Sabbath is coming and something had to be done. See, Jesus' body is on the cross. It's still hanging there. And the thing is, if nobody took charge of Jesus' body... You know what they did with the bodies that were people that were crucified in the, in the first century? They threw them into a common grave. They would take them down, throw them into the common grave, and the bodies would, there rot. And um, it, there's a place, there's a specific place in Jerusalem that's called the Valley of Hinnom. The Valley of Hinnom. And it's, it was a place in the Old Testament when there was defilement would take place. It was a place of, of crime. It was a place where you just didn't want to walk in the dark of night. But during the time of Jesus, it had another name. And you might have heard this name before. It was called Gehenna. Gehenna. Which is also likened to a word that we use in the English language. To anybody know what that is? Hell. Yes. So basically, the story is, Joseph saves Jesus' body from going to hell. Truthfully, that's, that's really what's happening here. So this is the valley that was really Gehenna, called the Valley of Hinnom. That was where bodies were thrown after people were crucified. And, and of course, when it comes to Joseph, you know, we all know hindsight 2020. We can read the rest of the scriptures. We know the story, how it goes, what happens on that third day. Jesus rises and the tomb is empty. But Joe didn't know that. He didn't know that. He didn't know that. And the thing is, Jesus, Jesus very well could have risen from Gehenna. He could have probably been a little bit dirtier, I would suppose, and have maybe like parts and pieces and, and that kind of thing. And that would have been an amazing thing. And that's not outside of what God could have done. But the thing is, later in the story, that would have been very explainable. 
Let me talk about what I mean here. That, that if his body had just, just been thrown into the pit, it would have been very explainable to say, well, the disciples just went and they took it or somebody did something or it wasn't really dead in the first place. And it would have just been very, very obvious that he never died in the first place or his body had been taken if that had been the case. See, the interesting thing is, Joseph wasn't thinking about that. He wasn't thinking about that at all because he wasn't expecting resurrection at all. Nobody was. Think about that. None of the disciples, nobody who followed Jesus, actually believed Jesus was going to rise from the dead. Zero, like zero percent. There was nobody waiting. There was nobody counting down like, okay, Jesus, you got another couple hours here. Okay, we're going to have like a little camp out, you know, like you do when the new Chick-fil-A opens. You know, we're going to camp out wait for it to open, and okay, something's going to happen if we put him in the tomb, then we're going to wait and have the camp out. Like, there was nobody doing that. They believed it was done. Game over. Go home. We wasn't right. Like, nothing is going to happen. He was killed. Nobody believed in the resurrection, including Joseph. So who was he? Who was he? Well, Joseph of Arimathea, Arimathea is the town where he was from, 20 miles northwest of Jerusalem. Arimathea means heights, so I'd assume he was not afraid of them. But on, he was also on the Sanhedrin Council. We're told he was on the Holy Council, so he was well-respected. We also can assume that he was rich. And the thing is, in the story, people reading this later on or hearing this story of Jesus' trial and arrest and crucifixion and then eventually resurrection, people who were hearing this story probably knew him or knew his family. He's named specifically here. So you think anybody in the first century, maybe even the second century, be like, oh my gosh, that's so-and-so's great-great-grandfather. Wow, like that's indicating something really powerful here. And so we're told that he was part of that council, which means that he had sat through that night session in the high priest's house, through all the accusations and the condemnation. It's interesting, Luke's version of this story, in Luke's gospel, uh, he says that that he indicates that, that Joseph was one who did not give consent for the council's decision. But of course, Mark, when we read that scripture today here, Mark doesn't say that. He leaves us to decide, what did Joseph vote on? What did he do? But here we have a guy who was also specified, not as 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 somebody who was following Jesus in the crowds and all that stuff, but as waiting for the coming of God's kingdom. So another way to put, he was a secret follower of Jesus. And you think about it, it makes total sense. He was probably really scared to reveal that he was following this supposed Messiah. But then he's on the council, right? And the council decides, okay, we're going to condemn Jesus and sentence him to death. He also has to stomach the whole scene. He watched Jesus die on the cross. But then what does he do? What does he do after Jesus dies? Rather quickly, by the way. Usually, like I said, it took like two to three days for somebody to die, mainly of asphyxiation on the cross, on their crosses. But what does he do Well, he musters courage to ask for the body. He musters courage to ask for the body and then bury it. And think, what's going through Joe's mind as he's getting prepared to do this? Think, what does he do? What is going through his mind as he's holding the lifeless body of Jesus after Jesus' body takes it down? 
Think about this. This is the Jesus that he had watched from a distance, the Jesus who had walked on water, who had made the blind see, who calmed storms, who turned water into wine. He brought other people back from the dead. Joseph had to have expected so much more, but it didn't happen. It didn't happen. So in a way, Joseph had to bury his expectations of Jesus when he buried the body. And last week with Barabbas, we talked about our expectations of Jesus and how many people at their time wanted Jesus to come in and and to put the Romans in their place and to raise up an army. And of course, we talked about that last week. So this week, I want to ask you a different question. And that question is, what are we to do when God fails fails to show up or deliver? What are we to do when God fails to show up or deliver, or we feel like he, he has done something that is not what we thought. You know, I, I know what I did, back to my story. When I question, like, why did these two friends of mine, why did they die? I, I ran, I cried, I questioned, I gave up. But imagine Joseph, Joseph, right? Joseph did not become a hero who everybody praised, because he actually didn't have very much faith in Jesus at all at this moment. In fact, he didn't have any more faith than anybody else at the moment. But the difference is he responds differently. He responds differently. See, in just a few verses of Scripture, Joseph shows us what to do when those, with those expectations, when those things don't happen, or when we think that, okay, God has failed us in some way. And I think his story reveals some life-altering truths here. And the first is to do what's honorable. To do what's honorable. When things don't happen as expected, whether it's with God or something in life, to do what's honorable. See, starting with honor, when you start with honor, it prevents bitterness and disbelief. See, in a moment when Joseph could have just thought, like, why didn't you save yourself, Jesus? Like, or maybe he could have blamed everybody else or himself, right? We don't know how he chose or what he voted on that council. But in the moment, Joseph instead does what is honorable. And John tells us this in his version of the story. He says, later Joseph of Arimathea asked Pilate for the body of Jesus. Now, Joseph was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly because he feared the Jewish leaders. With Pilate's permission, he came and took the body away. See, as far as Joe knows, Jesus is dead. Jesus is dead at this point. And it's really important to to note that Pilate confirms this. Pilate confirms it. Then he sends somebody to go check. Can you go make sure that the guy's dead first before we take him off? And this was especially important. The reason why the gospel writers include these kind of details that, once again, we kind of gloss over or zoom through, the reason it's important is because later believers encountered lots of people who who quoted that Jesus really didn't rise from the dead because he had never really been dead. And so he's been checked twice already, probably more than that. These guys, the centurion, would have looked for signs of life. Because the last thing that they want to do is to take down somebody who's not dead, right? Crucif- being crucified is supposed to take your life. But the whole thing is that Jesus' messiahship goes out the window for Joseph. And all of Jesus' mockers, people that made fun of him or laughed at him, they had to be thinking at this point, 
Just like if you've ever had a bully, like see you fall on your face, like I knew it, right? Ha ha, I knew it, you were failed, like that's what's happening. And at this point, no one knew that Joseph followed. Think about that. No one knew at this point that he was a secret follower. He could have walked away to save his reputation. He could have walked away at this point to save his reputation. But the thing is, he chooses to risk it all to get Jesus' body a proper burial. He didn't have to do that. I mean, this was the point to walk away if you're going to walk away, right? No, No harm done. But he chooses to risk all of it because you don't know what they're going to do to you, right? If you're associated with the guy that was just crucified, like that's why the disciples all left. But why did he do it? Why did he decide to do it? Did he just feel guilty for not doing anything, for not standing in the gap? Or maybe he just wanted to honor Jesus, to choose the honorable thing. He does what's honorable. How does that ring true for you? What what does the honorable thing look like? Because when things don't go our way, you know, we've talked about this in previous weeks. Some of us, you know, the fight or flight thing, or some of us go into hiding and we retreat from the world and, and we stay in our own selves. Others choose the nuclear option, right? We're going to blow everything up. I'm just going to destroy everybody and everything because I don't care anymore. Like, like we've all done that. But when somebody doesn't meet our expectations, what if we would choose to do the honorable thing instead? I mean, even apart from Jesus, maybe a family member who wronged you, maybe you have every right to ignore them and, or somebody else in your life, you know, will, will you bury that and will you continue to honor them? Maybe you can't control what happened. You can't control their reaction, but you can control what you do. That's all part of the story, to do something positive out of it. And to take it, when doing things honorably puts it in the God's hands, to believe that there is more. And that's what Joseph did. Joseph, even though he didn't know of the resurrection that was ahead, he thought that the story had ended there, he didn't stop there. He knew not to stop there. But then something else that he did was that he also served in the face of uncertainty. When things didn't happen as expected for him, he served in the face of uncertainty. And I remember when my friends were tragically killed. I remember um, my friend Dave, who was one of them. Um, His parents, this was several weeks after uh, the funeral service and and everything. Um, His parents invited a whole bunch of his high school friends over. And, um, and I remember going and sitting down in that living room with them and, um, you know, most of us as kids, like, we didn't know what to expect. It was kind of awkward, but we wanted to honor our friend. And, and I remember the, the, this, this couple just wanting to sit there and minister to us. Think about that. Parents who just lost a child were ministering to these other kids. They were serving. They were still crushed, by the way. But they decided, and I'm sure they had lots and lots of questions about what God was doing or what, what all that, but they served us. They served us as young adults who were just in the middle of this too. And I just remember that, like in the face of the uncertainty of the situation, of the future, of everything, we sat in that living room and had food together and shared some memories and they asked us how we were doing and all that. And I remember just thinking, that, like, who does that? But think about that, the power of it, serving in the face of uncertainty without having everything figured out. 
They didn't want to serve anyway. And I remember out of that that year, our, our little group who had been there in that living room, um, we decided to once again honor our friends, and we went Christmas caroling that year, even without them, with those empty places, because we decided we should serve anyway. You know, we didn't have it all figured out, but we served in the face of uncertainty, because I know this, and you know this, serving helps with healing. Serving helps with grieving. It reminds us that God is still at work. It frees us without losing memory of what has happened. It frees us to move forward. And for Joseph, I think serving, serving was a powerful moment. And of course, for him too, it even carried the weight of risk, right? That showing sympathy with someone who was crucified would raise suspicions. I mean, Mark in verse 46, it says, Then Joseph also bought a linen cloth, and taking down the body, wrapped it in the linen cloth, laid it in a tomb that had been honed out of rock, and then he rolled a stone against the door of the tomb. There were risks involved with this process here, out of his service. And the first thing we realize is what he's doing here is actually he's treating Jesus as a close member of his family. He's treating Jesus as a close member of his family. See, by tradition... By tradition, the, the senior male of a relative, of a senior male relative of a crucified person, so say somebody's crucified, their senior male relative, so maybe their father, in this case, um, Jesus' earthly father is passed, uh, but that relative is obligated to deal with the body. That was the custom, that was the tradition. And doing some research, it's very interesting. There's some crazy stories out there that actually, this is a side note, that that talk about Joseph of Arimathea as being Jesus' uncle because of this. We don't know that. And there's lots of crazy stories. There's a really crazy one that um, the Brits have this, by the way. Um, They talk about how Joseph of Arimathea, this is not in the Bible, so please don't quote me on this, but how when Jesus was a boy, Joseph of Arimathea took him on a little trip to the U.K., I'm, I'm serious. You can look this up. And they went to Great Britain and they walked around and there's spots that he went to and then they came back, you know, a little, little trip there. And then after, after the, the crucifixion and resurrection, Joseph of Arimathea, he went back to Britain. He had just had a thing for Britain. And he brought them the chalice that Jesus had drank from. And, and he goes back to this place. You can visit those places, by the way, that are so say, But there's crazy stories. There's crazy stories all around of, of, of this about G, of Jesus and Joseph. Um, and I don't necessarily believe that. But I think more so, and this is kind of my take on this story, was that why did he treat Jesus as a close member of his family? I think because he knew that Jesus had no one. He had no one. So he stepped in. He stepped in. The law said that you can't let the body hang overnight. That would go against Jewish law. So he treated Jesus as a close member of his family, but then also we have to recognize that he took a risk in in becoming ritually unclean. That that in the Jewish faith, that you can't engage in Sabbath practices if you touch a dead body. And this is, what's this the day before or the night that's going to start? Sabbath. Sabbath is about to start. So he's basically sacrificing his own participation in the Sabbath. Sabbath. He's choosing to become unclean by honoring and serving Jesus. And we see in the story there's lots of quick movement at this time between what's about 3 p.m. at Jesus' death and sundown. And so we go from Golgotha, we go to Pilate, 
We see that Joseph, he goes to Pilate and he asks for permission. And then Pilate, what does he have to do? He has to go send somebody to double check and then wait for that to happen and make sure Jesus is dead. And then Mark kind of makes that a, a, a point, of course, to show that, there, that Jesus was really dead, to kind of squelch those later rumors of Jesus still being alive and that Joe had revived him in some way. But then finally, when they, everybody agrees that Jesus is dead, right? Everybody finally agrees he's dead. Joe can finally go and take his body off the cross. But what does Joe also do? He's smart. He goes through, while he's going through the city, he buys a shroud. And in Jerusalem, there's markets everywhere, so he buys a cloth on his way, and he goes, takes the body, and, and finishes the job. And the burial, the burial would have had a <clears throat> kind of two-stage burial, a little bit different than how we bury today. This is an illustration of, <clears throat> excuse me, the inside of a tomb, of a tomb, a family tomb. And what you would do is that first the body would be wrapped up. And then ideally you would not just wrap the body, but then you would also add some spices to it so it wouldn't be so stinky. And you would lay it on this kind of shelf that's in the tomb there. And then you would leave the body on the shelf in that room. And after about one to two years, you would come back and the body would be all decayed and everything. And what would be left would be bones. And so what you would do is go back into the tomb, take the bones, collect them, put them in a little box, and you see those other little, little enclaves there. You put them in the bone box on ossuary, and then put that in the family tomb. And then guess what? The little, the little ledge there would be for the next body. So this was a communal tomb here. And so we see in the story, though, the burial is only halfway done. Not even that, a quarter of the way done. Because all Joseph has time for is the wrapping. He doesn't have time to do the second part before leaving the body there. He only wraps the body. He has no time for the anointing. So he leaves the tomb, and we're told in, in verse 47, Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Joseph, saw where the body was laid. And that's an important detail we'll get to next week. But it, Joseph, Joseph easily could have gone home Joseph easily could have gone home and, and left. But if we looked at the entire scripture, we read six action verbs in the scripture that detail how he served, what he did. He was devastated, but he chose to look beyond himself for that moment. And the thing is, serving service is not medicine or it's not cure for loss. That, and I believe that we fully need to grieve and experience sorrow, but I think there is a path out of relentless grief and anguish to not quit serving, to not quit serving. And, and even among our spiritual disciplines that we participate in, there's going to be days that we feel like we're going through the motions when we're not feeling it. Some days you don't do it out of faith, but you do it out of obedience, and that's okay. Because I think Joseph shows us, I think, the most important piece here is that when those unexpected things happen, that we also need to patiently perceive the possibilities. To patiently perceive the possibilities. Martin Luther King Jr. once said, we must accept finite disappointment, but never lose infinite hope. Accept finite disappointment, but never lose infinite hope. Hope allows us to keep our eyes open for a glimmer of light that's in the distance. And see, because of what Joe did, of what he took the time to do, of what he took the risk to do, of course, we know it sets the stage for what comes later. But at this time, 
Joseph had no idea. No idea. He, he didn't see the resurrection coming because nobody did. And I think that makes us, us to ask the question to ourselves, are there possibilities that we don't see coming? Are there possibilities about God? I think this reveals the truth about God, that, that God isn't in the business necessarily of meeting your and my expectations, but what he is in the business of is redeeming them. And resurrection always requires a burial. Resurrection can't happen without a burial. And I think there's some things that God calls us to take on, but I also think there's some things that God calls us to give up. And that we need to bury and let God do it a different way. And the world we look around is full of evil, is full of painful, is darkness and death and disappointment. And there's going to be times that we have little to no faith. That what we thought about and what we thought would happen does not. But our call is not to take things in our own hands and get our way, but to serve and to honor anyway. To perceive the possibilities. To do what's honorable in the face of uncertainty, no matter what. And to watch for what God might do. To trust that even if we don't know what it is or what it looks like, that there is a next chapter. But the starting point that Joe shows us is a burial. A burial of our expectations, sometimes even our dreams. Uh, many times we, we think that bury means to deny or hide or not think of, but the, that's not the kind of burial I'm talking about. The kind of burial I'm talking about here is to let it rest and trust it to God. To let it rest and trust it to God. Resurrection requires a burial. So wrapping this up today, what is it that you need to bury? What do you need to bury? And not to hide or run away from, but maybe an expectation, a dream, a thought, something that, that you've been clinging to that has not been helpful to you and has not been helpful to your faith or maybe others in your family. What do you need to lay to rest here and entrust to God? Let's pray.